0: Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media.
1: Up first on our front page, these are the stories that we thought were most important this week. Chris, I don't think this first one is going to shock anybody. Uh, Cuomo, (laughs) Cuomo, Cuomo. (laughs) Uh, but all the different media aspects to this Cuomo scandal, the boosting of Andrew Cuomo and then the sharp turn in the coverage of him and the involvement of CNN and Chris Cuomo. I've been most interested by the CNN aspect to this. So by way of background, back in May, we learned that. Chris Cuomo, who hosts a CNN primetime show, was advising his brother on how to respond to allegations of sexual harassment from multiple women. We did not have the receipts. Uh, This was a Washington Post report. So CNN said that his actions were, quote, inappropriate, uh, but did not discipline him. Let's get Chris Cuomo's apology from back in May. I thought it was pretty illuminating. Let's play that clip.
0: Now, today, there are stories out there about me offering my brother advice. Of course I do. This is no revelation. I'm family first, job second. When my brother's situation became turbulent, being looped into calls with other friends of his and advisors that did include some of his staff, I understand why that was a problem for CNN. It will not happen again. It was a mistake, and I am sorry for that. This is a unique and difficult situation, and that's okay. I know where the line is. I can respect it and still be there for my family, which I must.
1: Okay, so he said he knows where the line is. Well, now we know precisely where that line is because New York Attorney General Letitia James's report comes out, and in the appendix, we get Chris Cuomo's email to his brother and his brother's public relations advisors Providing not just any brotherly advice, but advice about how to undermine claims from women accusing the governor of sexual harassment. And excuse me while I pull this up. Uh the his proposed statement that Andrew Cuomo should give was so bad and stupid. It was bad. It was, bad. Uh, it was pathetic.
0: Well, dare, I, I might even say Fredo-esque. It was Fredo esque. So
1: it, it started and We're going to put the link to the appendix of this report in our show notes. So check that out. It starts accusations have been made. And as any beacon reporter knows, I hate the passive voice. Any reporter worth their salt, journalists worth their salt to hate the passive voice. So that was funny. But what I thought was doubly funny was. This idiot puts this stuff in writing like he doesn't just get on the phone and nobody ever has to know, but be like, actually puts this in writing. That being said, there was all this brouhaha about Cuomo now that the attorney general's report has come out not covering the scandal. And let's play that clip where Cuomo tosses to Don Lemon, Cuomo, who had mentioned it, Don Lemon, who is beginning a show at this. Let's play that.
0: I'm going to make my witness, as you say, and you make know what? Make your witness. I love you, brother. I love you, D-Lemon. All right. This is Don Lemon tonight. The calls are getting louder and louder. This is what I'm talking about. Top Democrats from New York to the White House calling on Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign. That in the wake of the bombshell report from the state's attorney general that alleges the governor sexually harassed 11 women, including state employees and a New York state trooper. Question. Should Governor Andrew Cuomo resign? Answer, yes. My
1: hot take on this, Chris, is it doesn't freaking matter. This is all CNN going through the motions of being a responsible news organization when they know and we know and anybody with two brain cells knows that they're a political organization. And I find it funny that, you know, Chris Cuomo was doing all these interviews with his brother during COVID, which were basically in-kind political donations to his brother. But it was only inappropriate when the sexual harassment stuff came up. And, you know, as far as CNN goes, like, spare us. Um, We know that he's a political actor and we know that you don't care he is. He wasn't disciplined. And like, we see these people for what they are. So I find this going through the motions just totally ridiculous.
0: Well, look, uh, yes. I mean, obviously, CNN was not the only network that got way lost in the sauce on Andrew Cuomo. And I should apologize, uh, dear listeners. Uh, uh, We're both on the road this week. So if your audio quality is not what you demand of the ink-stained wretches standard of excellent, it's because I am in Memphis thinking about going to get barbecue. And Eliana has added some swishy place in montana being I am in big
1: sky montana chris and i brought my microphone so my audio quality should be pristine uh because i just care about the listeners that much
0: if you if i had to choose between the listeners uh and barbecue i'm sorry listeners and i but people should know i love barbecue a lot so that's just how it goes um, uh
1: we actually had barbecue last night uh it was so fantastic i'm gonna also put a link to that in the show notes roadhouse barbecue and big sky uh, shout out. It was phenomenal.
0: I think the the links from Memphis will be better and people know that.
1: Oh, wait, no, sorry. Riverhouse, Riverhouse barbecue. Link in the show notes for when next time you're in Big Sky.
0: Go there also for the Memphis links. All the networks got lost in the sauce on, uh, no pun intended, on Cuomo or a lot of the networks did. It was uh, out of control, the coverage of Cuomo. One of the things I hated having to talk about in 2020 was, do you think that Joe Biden will be forced to step aside in favor of Andrew Cuomo. And I'm like, no, Andrew Cuomo is a dodo. He is a not smart person. And it's only because his last name and because New York politics are awful and all of that stuff that he is even the governor of New York. Give me a break. Well, uh, so, I mean, Chris, little-
1: er, this Chris, for however not smart Andrew is, Chris is like a few rungs down the IQ ladder, I think, because This stuff is so stupid and uh, just the pretending that they're actually responsible news people is laughable. And actually, when I was thinking about it and preparing for the show, I thought, like, is anybody surprised Chris Cuomo is like advising his brother on how to respond to this? I think the answer is no. Is anybody surprised that Sean Hannity uh, is writing commercials for Trump's campaign? Uh, I don't think so. But there is like a real, uh, you know, that's treated, I think, as more of a scandal than than this. And I don't know. They're both both absurd. And we both know that these people are political actors. They are not news people.
0: Okay, so I I think the Cuomo worship overall was preposterous. I think CNN is uh, yes, they were in kind contributions to Andrew Cuomo, but they were also in kind contributions to CNN. Because they thought Andrew was all that stuff. So, yeah, I don't think anybody thought that Chris Cuomo was going to be impartially covering his brother, regardless of whether his brother was doing well or doing poorly and all that stuff. I think the real question here for the press, I've been thinking a lot about Donald Trump and Ralph Northam. The old standard that we had in coverage was pressure. mount. it's the Watergate, like a lot of things in the media. Uh, Watergate sort of set the template. There's a massive scandal. And this wasn't just true in Watergate. This was generally true. I've been part of the stories like this in my career, where the press gets the story, the pressure is on, and the elected official has to either step down or declare they're not going to run again, or whatever. And that's supposed to be the life cycle. And what Donald Trump and Ralph Northam proved was that and Ralph Northam, when he was when when either he was a plant, when went to a, a costume party as a Klansman or in blackface, it appeared, according to his yearbook, that he just said no and I'll stay and let it go. And Cuomo has gotten through a lot of the scandal by doing exactly that, following the same playbook that Trump played on his scandals uh, and that, nope, I'm not going to go and, no, and daring his own party to buck him on this that's as... true
1: but i think there are a few differences um, i think trump both trump and northam they refuse to apologize or give an inch on things that the average like person or voter would also not think was a big deal whether it's like you know it okay does does like the average person care that ralph northam was uh as a medical student 35 years ago maybe pictured in blackface or in a clan realm, like, I don't really think they do. And the, now he's incredibly popular. So I think that grew up. But like the Cuomo thing is of a completely different variety where this is a series of accusations from many women, uh, criminal investigations, both into his conduct in COVID, which is a bigger deal than any of this sexual harassment stuff and the sexual harassment stuff. Like he's facing, I, I just think, a more serious Set of allegations from more diverse sources, and I think that the voters are turning against him, which is like what this hinges on. It's not what the media says or whatever. It's like, do the voters think this stuff is a big deal?
0: So, as as outlets go to cover these stories, if the if the arc is not if the if if that is not the functional arc anymore, if the old idea of story comes out, pressures on, you know, and I guess we have to credit Bill Clinton, credit or blame Bill Clinton as the first one to really brazen it out, right? Nixon gave it a shot. Uh, Clinton was the first one to, now of course he did apologize and he did partly take responsibility uh, for a thing that prior to the end of the 20th century, any politician in America outside of probably Huey Long uh, would have been driven from office and would have faced pressure from his or her own party to step down, not just because, and this is, and I think this is where the press the struggle is when you have perniciously weak parties, when you have very, very weak parties, it is just as you say, take a survey, see what people think, and then we'll tell you what we think. I hearken also to uh, the Access Hollywood tape. The The Republican uh, leadership came out and said, Trump has to step down. You must step aside for Mike Pence to try to save the Senate. And they waited five days and they're like, well. I don't know. I mean, it's hurt his numbers, but not that much. So I guess it's okay. You know, it is a, a nation—a a nation of moral imbeciles led by parties uh, of moral imbeciles. So I don't. I
1: it's a nation of moral imbeciles. I don't. I, I usually agree with like where the people, broadly speaking, fall on these things.
0: I think. We're, I think we're having an increasingly hard time applying moral and ethical judgments to questions without crowdsourcing them. And I think individuals, I think the herd mentality has intensified on these questions. But that can be a that can be a podcast for another day. It's a My podcast point, for
1: another day because, OK, like we can think that that, you know, it's immoral. What Trump said It's terrible. But like, should it disqualify him? It's different. It's like two different questions.
0: But I assume now with I'll be I'll probably be wrong again, though, um, with the Democratic president of the United States, with the impeachment proceedings starting in Albany, It's it would seem like now, Cuomo, that gravity will apply to Cuomo. On the other hand, if I am Cuomo and he does have Rudy Giuliani rooting for him. So he's got that going. Not if he
1: reads the Free Beacon satire column by, you know, quote unquote, Donald Trump on how to survive two impeachments.
0: Then Rudy Giuliani is beyond satire. You cannot you you cannot satirize Rudy Giuliani. You have Rudy Giuliani out there saying that he should not be forced from office, should not step down. Uh, should not be impeached, blah, 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 blah. I, I assume looking for some sort of weird, bizarro world consistency. But you know the possibility exists that Cuomo could just say, like Northam, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be right here uh, as the governor. And I guess not run again. And so for the press, figuring out where the plumb line drops, and I know, as you rightly point out, each of the situations is different, but we still have not figured out as a, as a press corps, how to deal with these questions in an era where people really in the, for the, for 20 years, and it's only intensified, had the willingness to say, I don't care what you say. I don't care if it's bad for the party. I don't even care if it's bad for the country. I'm going to stay here because you can't make me go.
1: Time to move on. This is your, you're up next, Chris.
0: Oh, what am I going to talk? Oh (laughs) yeah. So Everybody knows what you, you talk about the things you were talking about, the things that uh, actual Americans care about. Well, this week, uh, Tucker Carlson tonight is going to is testing that question uh, by broadcasting from Budapest, Hungary, uh, where Hungarian strongman uh, Soros hater and European super creep uh, Victor Orban, the aspirant dictator of Hungary. Uh, is hosting Carlson for the week. And uh, Carlson interviewed him and did all this stuff. And obviously there's a ton of criticism. We should play Uh, the clip,
1: let's play the clip.
0: Hungary and its government have been ruthlessly attacked and unfairly attacked. It's authoritarian, they're fascists. That is, there are many lies being told right now. That may be the greatest of all. The last Hungarian revolution was less contested than our last revolution and probably more transparent. That's true. It's not an endorsement of anybody, but that's true. So ignore the lawyers, the liars rather, and the lawyers, and judge for yourself. Is it working and Hungary or not? We think that it is. So uh, you, can see, you can see why there would be a ton of criticism uh, of Carlson for, to use a, a terrible phrase that has, that has seeped into the, every nook and cranny uh, of legitimizing Orban, but uh, leaving aside those criticisms, My criticism would be, what is the matter at Fox that that is a good use of resources and that they think that viewers like European politics and Orban's a very extreme case just for people who aren't familiar?
1: I was just going to say the reason that this bothered me uh, was that. I don't think that most Fox viewers, when I was at Fox, they had a rule that was like, we don't really cover foreign policy or foreign affairs unless there are bombs going off. And, you know, there's great video to show because the viewers don't really care about it, which is true uh, as far as viewers are concerned. But so I don't think most Fox viewers know very much about Victor Orban. And for them, like Car- Tucker Carlson is their introduction to him. But for it's those weird. listeners who don't know, Chris, like what, what should we know about Victor so Basically,
0: Orban? The, w- the way to think about Victor, a way to think about Victor Orban is a guy who has used successive crises and exaggerated crises to reduce representative government in Hungary. And he has used the Syrian migrant waves, coronavirus, everything. You can, you can tell what kind of cat he is because he is always there for more cowbell. And by cowbell, I mean more of his control and more tighter and tighter control. People are talking about him as anti-democratic. That doesn't quite get it. What he is is authoritarian and he's against representative. He he has rolled back representative government.
1: My friend, Jamie Kirchick, uh, who's at the Brookings Institution now, has done uh, good coverage of Orban. He lived in Europe for several years. But I'm going to link a couple of those pieces in the show notes for those who want to read more.
0: Orban is the kind of uh, uh, the dystopian future. Uh, Of the American right that a lot of a lot of conservatives fear, Uh, and Orban is is far enough into the bloodstream now. Uh, JD Vance, uh, who is running for Senate out in Ohio for the Republican nomination for Senate out in Ohio, was uh, touting his love for Orban's policies to 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 try to build a nation of greater fertility rates and the incentives that should be for family formation and size, and a lot of like kind of hey whoa. But the point here is. Why that is something that people think Fox viewers or American viewers at home want to spend a week in Budapest with Tucker, I don't understand that even a little bit. Uh, And it seems oddly propagandistic. It seems it just it just plays as off for me. And relatedly, when J.D. Vance was uh, after he got a lot of the attention I'm sure he wanted for talking about Orban and this kind of authoritarian mumbo jumbo, he would gave an interview to I, I hope I didn't talk about this last week, but he gave an interview to the Federalist afterward and said, don't worry. You know what? Don't worry about me selling out to the fat cats and the establishment, because I can go on Fox News anytime I want and raise a bunch of money. And I thought, I don't know if I would have said that out loud, J.D. Vance.
1: Uh, you, you're, you got the next one, too, Chris.
0: I'm still going, yeah. Oh, okay.
1: And still oh, on well, Fox this is, oh,
0: Well, it's the relate. It's it's related. Andrew Napolitano is the judge is out at Fox, uh, and uh, it is around the accusations. It is it, it's a a very Fox statement. You know that the, the, the a guy filed a lawsuit. A producer who had worked for Ludovs had filed a lawsuit alleging that the judge had sexually harassed him in an elevator in 2019.
1: Very on brand
0: for, for Fox, Fox. Yes. Well, okay. So the, so here's what I find really weird about this. So, and first of all, I should disclose up front, uh, the judge, I am um, a friend, I'm a friend of the judge and I have always known him to be a very dear man, just a like the, the a, a, just a sweetheart of a guy. Uh, I don't know anything about these allegations, but a couple of points. Number one, I wonder if the judge would have had the same experience with Fox uh, if he had towed the company line uh, on uh, MAGA stuff better. Uh, The judge was a he he always made an effort to to stand up to his sort of libertarian worldview. And when things didn't line up, uh, he wasn't uh, he was willing to go say that. So I wonder if if that was part of the story. But here's what I find super weird. So. At the same
1: time, Chris, one of my favorite stories that I ever wrote at Politico with my former colleague, Annie Carney, was about Trump talking up the judge for a SCOTUS appointment. So- it was that was
0: those were crazy early days. Those were the craziest early days of Trump when he was like, can I get the judge on the Supreme Court? And I told the judge at the time, I was like, man, uh, I'm all for you. It'd be it'd be uh, be weird to cover, uh, but, <laughs> but I'd be all for you.
1: Uh, we're that, gonna link that story in the show notes too. What could have been, everybody?
0: What will not be in the show notes? Will there any? Will there be anything? That, I'm glad the internet is infinite. Um, <laughs> the so so here's what's weird about the story. On the one, so the 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 company says yes, we and and we are we have parted ways, like acknowledging the claim, not denying it on uh, on any grounds, and seeming to confirm it. But the same lawsuit. Alleges misconduct by a new Fox business host, uh, former White House economic advisor, Larry Kudlow. Says that Larry Kudlow was uh, spoken bigoted, like didn't want to have a black congressman on and all this other stuff uh, sexually. You you may
1: have picked up on this in your decade at Fox. They are very sensitive now to allegations of sexual harassment regardless of the merit. I think they are not very sensitive to allegations of racism and, you know. Well, la, but, la,
0: but it does have a component. It does have a, a, a sexo component here uh, with him saying lurid things about uh, Fox on air uh, ladies. Uh, so what I find weird about the response here is they seem to acknowledge the charge against the judge and don't defend yeah, him, some but then it. say, But then just say, oh, but this other stuff about Larry Kudlow, that's just out of nowhere. So that's that just seems I don't I I have no idea what's going on. I have no inside knowledge, but that just strikes me as very weird.
1: Come here for people who have no idea what's going on and no inside knowledge. We should really make that the tagline. That's right. We don't know. Uh, (laughs) But
0: here's here's my guess.
1: Uh, So it's the results are about like me doing archery uh, (laughs) off the target. So. This, was, this is not my obsession for the week, but I did love that the New York Times uh, had a big feature piece uh, whose headline was three, and then in parentheses, white male tough guys sign off. Is it a moment? Uh, just to translate for you guys, they want us to think this is a moment with three detective shows with the p- protagonists who so are white males. The shows are Jack Irish, Boche, and Mr. In uh are going off the air. And
0: first, can you tell us? I, I have never watched, so no one likes uh, detective procedural and uh, those kinds of shows more than me, uh, I promise. And I have never seen any of these shows. I thought it was pronounced Bosch. Is it oh, Bosch? It
1: might be, you know, I actually, I love that show and I watch it. I, Bosch might be right. Uh, I've actually so, always wondered about that. So
0: tell, tell but, us, just give us a quick, pressy on what the shows are what's jack irish what's Bosch? and what's mr in between
1: so i have no idea what jack irish and mr in between are um, okay but Bosch is like an old style police drama with a grizzled detective is it british and, uh no no american okay uh, but titus welliver who plays Bosch, i think is british
0: what's um, his name
1: titus welliver
0: that is, great actor. That's, that, that's such a great name. It, it almost feels like it has to be faked. I may use that as my alias, Titus that's Wellinger. <laughs> that's really uh, good.
1: But I love that in this piece, uh, there are two things. One, one of the following line where they say, none of that was unusual for a contemporary show trying to finesse the un- increasingly uncomfortable fact that its protagonist was a white man on the wrong side of 50 whose dramatic arc tended, however reluctantly towards violence. So in saying like, we need to get these white men off the air, apparently it's bad to have people over 50 on the air too. But, uh, Like they're telling us this is uncomfortable, uncomfortable for whom? I mean, it's ridiculous. And then then the best, like the icing on the cake of the story was the coda um, that there will be a new spinoff of Bosch about Bosch and his (laughs) daughter. So, like, I don't think this really says what you guys think it's saying, New York Times.
0: Well, first, I want to let everybody know that Columbo is available on Amazon Prime. Uh, It's great. I watched I just I watched all of Columbo earlier this year. Uh, I'm into it and I have a, a years long project watching the original Magnum PI. So that will tell you uh, what a cultural dolt I am. But I, I, I would just say a, a word of peace on behalf of the author of this uh, arts and television piece for The New York Times. Woe betide the man or woman these days trying to write culture stories because there isn't one. And I don't mean that to say that we are uncultured and it is a vast wasteland. I mean to say that there we have we are moving out of a monoculture and we can talk about the uh, the book coming apart. We can talk about all the ways in the last 50 years that our culture has atomized and we've moved away from a common culture. But as I read this, when you shared it with me, I thought this poor so-and-so is out here trying to make a living writing culture and scene pieces. For people who it's like, if you have think about it this way, if you get what do you mean? He's
1: writing culture and scene pieces for the readers of The New York Times.
0: Yes. But what I'm saying is, if you have a show that gets a million people to watch it, that's a huge show now because we're so everybody is watching a specific thing. We don't have the big cultural touchstone moments like we used to when there were three networks and all that other stuff. And I don't even have to watch any of the new stuff that comes out. I can watch stuff from the 1970s and 1980s. I can, you know what the greatest of all, and by the way, let the the world hear it, let the word go forth. I want the rest of Banachek available to stream. So I don't even need to watch new stuff. So if somebody was writing a scene piece to talk to me, they'd be like, how were George Papard's turtlenecks on Banachek evocative of the new look of the late 1970s give me a break I have
1: no idea what you're talking about let's go to our last (laughs) i'm just saying i'm just saying i'm
0: just saying i'm just saying
1: the two without a common culture represented on this on this podcast
0: without a common culture you can't have culture writing and so this is a terrible lame story where he's trying to spin up something he's looking for a, a trend you know about the three green valises right no do you think people know that so uh, one one is uh, so the, the three green valises three makes a. Oh trend. Oh my
1: god! Okay, okay. I was gonna say, how long is it gonna take you to move to this next story? Let's go.
0: Three. So three things make a trend. So here's a guy who's looking for three to come up with a trend story. He's using two shows nobody's ever heard of and one that you say is good, uh, and ha- trying to write some scene piece. You know, I I hope the check's clear. I hope it works out okay.
1: Up next. Thank you to our wonderful reader. Chris, you want to do the shout out?
0: Oh, I do want to give a shout yes. out to Karen Billups, who uh, wrote us at and, and hipped us to uh, a great piece at the Atlantic. So and we would invite everybody. What's the email address?
1: Uh, wretches at nebulouspodcast dot com. Wretches,
0: wretches at, nebula-
1: at nebulous dot com.
0: Uh, and uh, alert reader Karen Billups sent us a very good piece from the Atlantic and very funny commentary. And I. it's worth a mention here. It's an Atlantic piece about Amy Chua who got famous as the author of the battle hymn of the tiger mom. And she had this whole media moment. She's a law professor at Yale. She and her husband are both law she's professors. Like the at,
1: best known law professor at Yale. She's also like, you know, she's this insanely attractive and smart lady.
0: And uh, do you know anybody who went to Yale? I don't know. It's escaping my. Oh, you. That's right. Um, Not the law so,
1: school, though. So no, I'm, only, I'm only a fan of hers from afar.
0: So the so Amy Chu is a very interesting person and she is a controversialist. She she knows where the, the heartbeat of the media is and all this stuff. But I ultimately find it boring uh, and kind of. Well, navel-gazing.
1: You got to tell the readers so about gonna, what the
0: scandal is. So that so there was a, there was a. Massive amount of coverage, or relative to the import of the matter, But Amy Chua, who had been punished for showing favoritism to students, and that she and her husband were hosting uh, back- dinner
1: parties for them,
0: and 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 were giving certain students an advantage over other students because of their connections, and it was said to be unfair and un un un. So I don't
1: even think that that was the complaint. I think it was just that she was drinking with grown adults, the Yale law students yeah, but the, and the heart of and, the complaint. And, I mean, look, the heart of the complaint, if we're being honest about it, was that her daughter clerked for Kavanaugh and that she supported Kavanaugh. And yes. as a result, there are these stupid, ridiculous leaks that come out about her uh, afterwards that she drinks too much with students. She's a gateway to. Clerkships, blah, blah, blah. But uh, it was great. This Liz Brunig piece from The Atlantic uh, is great because she basically says these are spoiled crybabies, which like none of the other pieces really got at. And the piece is excellent. The author of this Atlantic piece uh, is Liz Brunig, who not long ago was writing for The New York Times op-ed page and left for The Atlantic and is part of, I think, a series of departures from The Times op-ed page, including Frank Bruni, who went to Duke, and Barry Weiss, uh, who was – uh, defenestrated over there. And well she wasn't
0: defenestrated. She self-fenestrated. She laughed.
1: That's true. True. She was but, so
0: miserable. And I don't blame her for being so miserable.
1: Uh true. And uh anyhow, like the the interesting and sometimes heterodox people on that page have largely gone. Um and it's no, oh I will say that ideological conformity.
0: Bre- uh Brett Stevens still uh, puts the wood to it on a pretty regular basis. His piece this what? week about so, so Amari was really, really good. And and so I isn't at least, this your there,
1: shout out at the end? You're getting ahead. No, of Oh no, no, no!
0: I've got a, I've got a better oh, shout out. All than right, that. even better, even
1: better. Okay. Up next, finally, that was a very long opening oh. sec- <laughs> section. Our obsessions of the week, where we break down the stories that we can't get out of our head.
0: Chris, you're up first. Well, I'm going to I'll I'll be succinct with my obsession, but especially because it's one that that I have obsessed about before. But it is the moronic discussion about race as it relates to vaccinations and vaccination problems are substantially about poverty and ignorance. This is what we know. And it is true that there are Republicans who are not getting vaccinated. I'm sure that there are Republicans who are not getting vaccinated because of Joe Biden. And I'm sure that there's a group of people who would feel different about vaccines uh, if uh, there was, if Donald Trump was president, just as I'm sure that if Donald Trump had gotten reelected, there's a wait. Group, is there like an
1: article you're pegging this to? This is I'm very, pegging, like
0: I'm taking it off the runway. Uh, you got to let me get oh it. Oh my out, god, get,
1: this plane is really like inching down the runway.
0: Get, let the spruce goose <laughs> fly. So the you have a serious problem with vaccinations, and the the serious problem with vaccinations are people of low income and low educational attainment relative to the rest of the population. It's not complicated. And college and, and yes, college-educated uh, Republicans are getting vaccinated at a lower rate. It's true, I'm not saying that this stuff isn't true, but I wanna read to you how Bloomberg, in a piece about vaccine holdouts in New York City, talked about the uh, African-Americans who are the largest unvaccinated group, subgroup in New York City. Uh, quote, among black Americans in general, there's a deep distrust of government and pharmaceutical companies. Uh, quote, we're raised with the skepticism of the government when it comes to vaccines, said Henry Butler, district manager for the community board in Bedford-Stuyvesant, said, blah, 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 blah. Now, contrast that with a 538 piece about Republicans and vaccines. Um, not all Republicans have rejected the vaccine, but most vaccine refusers are republican now let me tell you most vaccine uh refusers are republican yeah there are more republican vaccine refusers than there are democratic vaccine refusers because there are not that many black and hispanic people in the united states relative to the larger white population using these unanchored statistics like this would make it seem like that this is a Republican Democrat issue. The rate of of unvaccination among African-American and some uh, with Hispanic populations. you always have to be careful because there's broader geographical differences there than in other ethnic subgroups. But holy cannoli, the idea that because there are so many more white people than there are black people, there's only 12 or 13% of the population is African-American. The idea that you're just gonna talk about the total number in that way fails to acknowledge a truth that comes up in a bunch of coverage. It's, it's here, but it's in a bunch of things. Poor white people are treated differently because of the intersectional argument about white privilege. Well, I want to tell you, I've been on the road. I have driven through Appalachia and all the way out to Memphis, and I have not seen a ton of white privilege, right? Uh, in Western Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Kentucky, uh, and Tennessee. There are some very rich folks doing really well. I've seen a lot of poor white people. And I'm not saying this this is
1: like an attempt to make something that is not really political. It's forcing something through the Republican Democrat lens. So, like, of course, Republicans have to be the bad guys when, you know, in this case, it just so happens, like more Republicans than Democrats. I
0: don't want to infantilize poor whites and I don't want to infantilize working class whites and saying they don't have agency and they're not making their own choices any more than I would say that about African-Americans living in Bedford-Stuyvesant. We're all equal. We're all created equal in God's image with these rights attached to us. And we are all the same. The coverage, though, treats these two subgroups, poor whites and poor blacks, differently. Uh, I understand the reasons why, but it clouds the argument and it prevents the correct steps from being taken to get more people vaccinated and get us where we need to be so we don't have to put a mask on again, for goodness sake. Is that it done you with your obsession? Arrums.
1: Okay. Uh, well, my thought about this was really, there's so much handling. It's amazing. It's like done in the open now, hand-wringing by reporters about how to, uh, write the news to achieve the desired policy or political outcome. And this jumped out for me in Mike Allen's Axios newsletter, uh, on Sunday. So that was August 2nd. Um, the, the top two items were like reporters stressing about the dilemma they face. Uh, so their climate reporter says um, his thought bubble it was as follows. Being a climate reporter today is like being a chronicler of human caused disasters, along with a bearer. Blah, blah, blah. Um, he, know, he says, I also know that too much doom leaves risking, risks leaving people with a sense of fatalism obscuring the equally true and equally relevant fact that the damage does not have to keep getting worse at this pace. Uh, So, you know, he's like viewing his job as producing a certain feeling in the audience, which is totally ridiculous. Then their next uh, item is the Delta variant dilemma, uh, quote, reassuring most vaccinated Americans they don't need to freak out could backfire if it causes those who are at risk to let down their guard. Like when we hear they're being totally open that they're, they are working to get everybody vaccinated, which is fine, it's just not the media's job. Um, and how to write the news to produce that result is just, you know, absurd well, I, and now happening in the open.
0: I, I, I find Axios uh, so consistently insulting as a reader. Um They do their little bullet point things where they're like, be smart. What they're saying, hot take, blah, 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 blah. So they're already, Axios already talks down to you in its format. Its format is designed to talk to you like you're in seventh grade. Uh, No offense to seventh graders, uh, but they're already already talking down to you. It's supposed to be this high-end product, and they're already talking down to you. So this is in keeping with that. And I loved the uh, the the way that they did that in the story. I know this is not related to this, but they did a piece about uh, the new uniforms for the gymnasts, the the desexualized or kind of desexualized. Yeah, like Uh, the
1: female gymnasts went out where instead of wearing a leotard, they wore like skin tight pants and skin tight top.
0: Yeah, to to
1: desexualize themselves.
0: Exactly. But the funny thing is they even wrote that article in that way. Hot take. Be smart. Here's the thing to know about somebody's pants. Here's the thing.
1: They're wearing skin tight uniforms either way.
0: Thanks for the the pants update. Yeah. Be smart. Pants are things you wear on your legs. Thanks, Axios.
1: (laughs) Uh so my my obsession for the week is like adjacent to uh to, to all of this. Um, and it's this, I think Chris, like right after we finished recording, this came across the transom last week, which is national public radio gives the green light to its reporters to participate in social justice protests. And the NPR article says, Quote, NPR rolled out a substantial update to its ethics policy earlier this month, expressly stating that journalists may participate in activities that advocate for the freedom and dignity of human beings on both social media and in real life. The new policy eliminates the blanket prohibition from participating in marches, rallies and public events, uh, as well as vague language that directed NPR journalists to avoid personally advocating for controversial or polarizing
0: issues. Um, What about abortion?
1: This Well, this is like the inverse of the CNN thing where they're like trying to put form. They're, they're like going through the motions here. NPR is like, look, we know where our newsroom is, so we're just going to rewrite the policy. Since, like we don't already know these people are like social justice warriors and political actors. But um, they're, I, yeah, am I I, wrong? Po- Go ahead. hilarious. Yeah, of course, they don't mean like abortion protests or like Second Amendment protests. This is when I was a Politico. I remember they sent out a note saying, like, it's not appropriate for Politico reporters to participate in the Women's March. And this is now like the green light. Go ahead. Participate in the Women's March. I also love they're they're allowed to advocate on social media because like this change of policy, we're, we're going to see all this advocacy from reporters on social media that we haven't seen yet.
0: Free Freedom and dignity of human beings uh, is so subjective. Uh, and my idea of what dignifies a human being uh, and what is attached to freedom and be very different. And what this obviously means is as long as you are doing the right, I'm making air quotes, the right things, then you'll be fine. But don't do the wrong things, right? Uh, ask Amy Chua. You can be controversial, but you have to go controversial one direction. Uh, and look, The very simple thing, don't protest. If you want to be a reporter, you're giving up part of your public life. You are trading one thing in for another. No different than if you were a judge, no different than if you were any other person who has to be seen as impartial or try to be seen as impartial. And if you are protesting, you are making value judgments and you're doing all this stuff. And not only is it important to be a real fuddy duddy, Not only is it important to avoid the appearance of impropriety so that it will help listeners, viewers, readers, whomever uh, have more confidence in the product, but it has an effect on you as you activate, as you engage, it changes your thinking. These things don't happen in a vacuum. They have real effects on the people who participate. This is a terrible policy. And I just have to say to anybody who wants to be a journalist, you are making a trade off about giving up part of how you operate as a person you want to be an no, you're not
1: anymore i mean which of these organizations actually enforces this stuff like the npr policy shows no you aren't making well, any sacrifices t- i
0: can tell you that at the dispatch uh that if somebody was a activist i'm sure that the consequences would be real because the the activism that journalists should be engaged in is activism for their readers is to get to the truth to get I to don't the story i agree with that
1: the dispatch guys have been totally outspoken in their views on trump and in ways that like it, we would not expect a New York Times reporter to be.
0: Well, now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Now, it's one thing if you have if you are an opinion journalist and you take a position on a political banner, I'm talking about demonstrating. I'm talking about marching. I'm talking about political action. I'm not talking about having an opinion for an uh, opinion. journalist, should have opinions. I'm talking about demonstrating, marching, the kind of stuff that NPR is talking about.
1: I find that a weird, a weird line to draw, I think. Uh, But in any case, uh, that part B of my obsession was the Politico newsroom, according to Axios, wanting to unionize. And uh, the quote from Axios is that sources say several factors have pushed employees to seek union support when bartering with management, including the company's handling of internal pushback <laughs> against Daily Wire editor Ben Shapiro guest hosting Politico's flagship newsletter product. Uh, so like, it's the same as if you like, they want to unionize to uh, get the desired political slash editorial outcome. Uh, I'm not really sure that's like typically what unions are used for. But we need we need a, a Liz Brunig takedown of the, you know, entitled Politico newsroom.
0: I'm, I'm here for it. I will, yeah. I, I will, uh, maybe I'll just have a regular feature what the Atlantic did well this week.
1: Uh, we've, we've lingered way too long on this stuff. So finally we have our favorite items of the week this where is- I am forced to say something nice. I have kind of a cop out this week, but Chris uh, you go first.
0: You're better at avoiding saying nice I am, things. Totally. You're you're better at avoiding saying I nice. say, as, as I told Not in you, in this case,
1: I'm just exercising Cuomo brother privilege this week, which I which uh, our listeners will understand momentarily. But do your item. Well,
0: go, well, You uh, I, I would the one I really I want to thank the Gallup organization for doing a poll that very much needed to be done, because we've had a lot of silly billy conversation around what terms people are going to look the uh, the terms. For racial and ethnic groups change over time. That's a very normal thing. It's very understandable. Uh, But Gallup did the work of going out and finding what do black Americans want to be called? What do Hispanic Americans want to be called? Uh, What what is the What is the term? And uh, kudos uh, to black America. Fifty eight percent said they don't care. Uh, Black or African-American doesn't matter. Uh, African-American, I think, has a slight edge, but the overwhelming sentiment from uh, uh, black respondents was don't care. Either one is perfectly fine. The one that I love, though, and this is this is why it's a a Gallup has done the media a great service here. Have you are you're familiar with the term Latinx, right?
1: I am. My mom, who's from Peru, calls it Latinx. (laughs)
0: Latinx. And Latinx was supposed to be a, it's the Esperanto of ethnic terminology. Latinx was supposed to be a non-gendered way to refer to people of ancestry in Latin America. So instead of Latina or Latino, or you would just be Latinx. And here is the verdict from uh, the Gallup organization. 23% uh, of uh, applicable individuals uh, said that they like Hispanic, said they like Latino. A hot 4% came in for Latinx. So, if you are a writer, reporter, or journalist who is using the term Latinx, you are pushing something, not responding to something. We should be responding to what we should call people what they want to be called. We should, I'm not, I don't want to call somebody something that they don't want to be called. But you're the 4%, that basically could be covered by the newsrooms and college campuses. And leave no other Hispanic American included in that number. So thank you, Gallup.
1: And my shout out of the week is to my dad. This is why it's an exercise of Cuomo Brother Privilege here, <laughs> uh, who has covered, done really, really good coverage of a beheading in in Minnesota that happened in broad daylight. Um the The guy now in jail on murder charges. His name is Alexis Saboret. Saboret. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but uh, none of the mainstream media outlets there have reported, and my dad reported that um, he he was in the U.S. illegally, and he was heading to a court hearing where uh, he was on he was out on bail on arson charges and wielded a machete in this arse uh, uh, towards police in this arson case. And say, this machete, he ended up beheading his poor girlfriend with. But uh, I do think it's amazing that this has not been reported, that the guy was in the country
0: illegally. I think that I think that's uh, better than Cuomo brother privilege. I think that, first of all, uh, daddy daughter privilege, that's like an extra <laughs> layer even beyond that. In this case, it's a, it's an interesting story.
1: Well, that is the news about the news this week. If you have a story you want us to talk about, do what Karen did and email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com, wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.